shows. Join award-winning gardeners Chris Van Cleef and Teresa Byington as they chat with rose lovers and experts from around the globe. With each episode, you'll gain valuable knowledge and insights to achieve the rose garden you've always dreamed of. Listen now as we explore the world of roses. Hello, friends. Today I'm joined by Dr. David Byrne, Professor and Basie Endowed Chair in the Rose Gen- Genetics Department at Texas A&M. Now, Dr. Byrne will walk us through the research journey of sustainable roses. Doesn't that sound good? From the early work to today and share the wonderful news of funding for new work that is of great interest to those of us who love the rose. Hey, Dr. Byrne, welcome to Rose Chat. Well, thank you. It's so good. I'm just excited about our chat today. We're going to look at where we've been. We're going to look at where we're going with sustainable roses. But I want to start with your background. You actually worked with two men who are giants in the rose world. Yes, uh, that's how I got introduced to the rose world, actually, because uh, I was hired here at Texas A&M in 83 as a peach breeder, which I still do. And I've released 20 or so varieties for the southern U.S. But uh, in the early 90s, I met Dr. Basie. And for those who don't know who he is, he was a retired mathematician out of Texas A&M and a very enthusiastic rose breeder. And now he, he didn't breed to release things. He, he just bred for fun. <laughs> and uh, his objective was to develop things that were well adapted to our hot, humid climate. And I think one of the most disappointing things I ever experienced when I started working with roses is I put out a large variety trial and I saw how poorly adapted most things were. Mm-hmm. You know, Mr. Lincoln should be great, right? Well, it dies here unless you protect it. And so that was a sort of wake-up call for me. And when I met Dr. Basie, I basically knew nothing about roses. I wasn't thinking about ornamentals. I was into the fruit world. And uh, he began to introduce me to this. And actually, I met him because he came by my office one day, and he asked me if I could count chromosomes. And I mean, that may be a weird question for some, but for a breeder, that's pretty normal. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. And so he gave me uh, some uh, rose tips that he had. He said, can you count these? And I said, well, I guess so. And so I did. And from there, there on, I started being pulled into the rose world. And uh, it, it's been quite a, quite a journey. And with him, I started learning more about rose germplasm, and he was interested in various species and getting resistance for black spot out of species and put them into the cultivated germplasm so we could use them in our gardens. Um, And so this went on for various years. I started developing more of the research genetics aspect of the work. And then uh, later in about 2007, and I met Ralph Moore before, because when I started working with roses, the first thing I did was to visit rose breeders, because that's the best way to learn by seeing what other people are doing. So I met, met Ralph, and we've been in contact for years and years. And he called me up, or actually his lawyer did. And he, was, he, he asked me, would you be interested in a donation from Ralph Moore? And I said, well, yeah, I certainly would. And for those who don't know Ralph Moore, he's the miniature uh, father of the miniature roses. 
And in his left lifetime, he released, oh, about 500 different rose varieties, of which about 300 or so were, were miniatures. And his emphasis was really on unique floral traits. So, of course, he had the miniature. He worked a lot early on stripes, the halo trait, mossing, cresting, various things like that. But he also was interested in sustainable roses as well. Mm-hmm. And so I had the opportunity to be able to visit with him extensively to talk to him about his breeding and again learn a lot from him so i i had those two mentors that really uh taught me quite a bit of rose breeding and so sustainability was sort of the beginning of it i read that though dr basie and ralph moore's names are often linked and they are especially with this work and they knew of each other's work they never actually met no, so. they didn't. I was trying to get them to meet, but they they were at the when, when I met them, not, neither of them were traveling much, so mm-hmm. we couldn't get them together. Well, Dr. Byrne, let's get to the basics. And um, could you share what we mean when we say sustainable rose? Okay, sustainable roses. To me, that's a rose that's well adapted to your environment. One that you don't have to spray all the time that uh, just sort of takes care of itself. Uh, For the the humid South, you talk about resistance to diseases, environmental stresses. For us, it'd be most likely heat stress, uh, sometimes soil issues and things like that. If you go further North, you're talking about cold tolerance and things like that uh, and other diseases. So your, your disease package and your, your environmental resistance packages that you need might be a little different depending on where you are. And that's why you see regional trials of of roses now. And I think that's an excellent thing to have. Um, So it's something that's easy to take care of. Um, You can grow without sprays or much management. Of course, it needs to be attractive. I mean, Mm -hmm. any commercial rose has to have all the horticultural package there as well. I did a 2012 survey of rosarians and rose growers, and I asked them the question, what they want in a new variety? And the number one request was disease resistance. And then later in a, a later project, we did a willingness to pay study. The, the marketing people here at A&M did this study. And what they found was the the trait that people were more willing to pay most for were the adaptation traits. And the traits they looked at was disease resistance, drought tolerance, and heat tolerance. And that's pretty particular to our area. But if you go to other areas, you'll probably see other adaptation traits. Again, adaptation traits were the most valuable, more valuable than the horticultural traits when you're choosing varieties in this study. Occasionally, I get the opportunity, um, especially in the spring, to speak to different master gardener groups and about roses. And a lot of master gardeners don't grow roses, so I'm thrilled to talk to them about the beauty, the beauty and, and the fragrance and, and the wonderful things about roses. But the one thing they want to know, will I have to spray it? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's one thing you're trying to get around. Uh, again, you know, when I first did my my first variety trial and had things like, you know, Mr. Lincoln and, and JFK and all these, these popular varieties, they really didn't do well in Texas with our disease pressure and our heat. 
And so it was very disappointing. It was very hard to grow a rose. But now we have a lot of other shrub roses that are much easier to grow. And so variety choice makes a big difference. Oh, it absolutely does. So tell us a little bit about your beginning work with sustainable roses. Well, um, it's in the beginning of sustainable roses. Again, Dr. Basie was talking about adaptation, and that's part of sustainability, of course. That's one of the key points. And, of course, he released things like Basie's Blueberry, uh, Basie's Purple, Belinda's Dream, Belinda's Dream being an earth kind and really well adapted to our environment. Uh, So the first work went kind of slowly. And mainly because there was little funding available for ornamental research. Uh, so I looked around and, and this sort of changed uh, in about the mid 2000, 2005, 6, 7, somewhere around there. Uh, the federal government opened up a new funding uh, program called the Specialty Crop Research Initiative uh, Research Program. And this is USDA. And uh, so that opened it up to, well, especially crops, which are mainly horticultural crops, because mm-hmm. before all the other projects were open to all crops. So corn and soybeans and things like that took most of the money. And so it was very little left for us. And not that we didn't have good projects, that we just overwhelmed. And so uh, my first proposals uh, focused on genetics and breeding of black spot resistance. Uh, these were not funded, but I also worked with other people who worked on some of the breeding efforts to accelerate breeding, and we can talk about it a little more. And uh, so in, in 2009, we actually got some funding on a project called Rose Breed. And this project, uh, what it focused on was uh, developing molecular marker technology to accelerate our breeding projects. And it didn't work on just roses. Rose Breed is uh, a project on the rose crops in the rose family. And so the main emphasis was fruit crops. But as I was a peach breeder, I was involved in the fruit crops and I pulled in roses as well. <laughs> they didn't complain since they, they like roses. But it, it we had peaches, we had almonds, we had apples, we had blackberries and strawberries all mixed in here. And so we got a little funding for roses and I started working on molecular aspects of that and uh, uh, focusing again on black spot for the most part. Now, this sort of began that the, the concept of accelerating our breeding through molecular markers, um, Let me sort of explain how that works and and why it was sort of exciting for us. If you look at rose breeding in general, you're talking about about a five-year breeding cycle. And you may not have context for that. If you're talking about uh, corn breeding, you can do two to three cycles a year. So it's roses is a lot small, a lot slower. And so generally what happens, you make the cross the first year, grow the seedlings in the greenhouse the second year. And if you're selecting for something like rose rosette resistance, it takes you three years in the field to do that. So it's a five-year cycle. 
Now, the idea is to, to uh, use your DNA information and uh, develop sequences that are associated with specific traits. And so those are called markers. So it's sort of like a, a signpost that you can find <laughs> out where you are on that, that, that chromosome. And so you know which little piece of chromosome, uh, DNA is going to your, or where it's going and whether your plant has it. And that DNA is associated with a certain trait. And of course, my interest would be disease resistance. And so if you can do that, you can do the DNA sequencing on small plants in the greenhouse. So what follows is that instead of having a five-year cycle, you can do selection in the greenhouse after two years. And so your cycle is a two-year cycle. So it increases your rate of breeding tremendously. It doubles it. A little more than doubles. But in addition to that, since you're selecting the greenhouse, you don't have to take as much out in the field. Mm -hmm. Instead of taking, you know, all your plants out in the field for evaluation, you'll take maybe half of them. Or actually, maybe probably about 10%. So you're, you're, you're uh, decreasing your work in the field and the amount of field space you need for this. And then in addition, you know what your parents have. Because you can, instead of just saying your parent has a certain trait, you know what genes it has. So you can make better choices on which parents to use in your crosses. So you have various advantages. Of course, that was 20 years ago when we started this work. And at that time, it would not have been practical to use the technology because it was too expensive. But we've come a long ways. We certainly have. You know, we hear a lot about DNA and plants today. In fact, I've noticed several of the plants that I've known as a certain name for all of my gardening years, those names are now changing because of DNA. So yeah. it is definitely changing, you know, what we do. And that's that's a good thing. Now, I think it was probably in 2015 when I first heard about the research that was being done on RRD. I had found it in my garden, although through the years I found very little. I'm very lucky in that regard. But I was at a Rose Conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and Dr. Mark Wyndham, my first meeting of him, he and introduced us to this pesky little mite and this horrible virus. You know, I, I often say um, Mark Wyndham can make anything funny, but it was difficult for him to dull the impact <laughs> of this news, <laughs> but he tried. So let's talk about some of those uh, days in the initial work. Well, the initial work, and actually when I started working with Rose, Roses, I, Rose Rosette was not on my, my radar. You know, I've been focusing on Black Spot. It wasn't until 2013 when a the industry organized a Rose Rosette workshop. And they called me and said, hey, can you give a talk on breeding for Rose Rosette resistance? And I, I was sort of there. Uh, yeah, I could. I, I guess I better read up about Rose Rosette because I've never seen it. And this was in 2013. And so I started educating myself. And that, that industry organized conference was uh, organized by Star Roses and Plants and the Rose Garden Council, which is the organization that represents a lot of the propagators. And they brought the industry, the public extension people, uh, research people, various government agencies. We all got together and we discussed Rose Rosette. And I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. 
And what thing, one thing we wanted to do was to essentially develop a plan, which we did, which evolved into a proposal. And that proposal was submitted and was funded in 2014. So uh, you have to realize at this time, we just beginning to learn about Rose Rosette. We knew it was out there. And we'd known about Rose Rosette for at least 70, 80 years, because it was first uh, reported in the 40s and 50s. It, uh, Rose Rosette is a North American native. We can't blame anybody for bringing it. <laughs> Shoot. It's us. Uh, but its cause was only described in 2011. So we didn't know what caused it. We, we had suspicions, but we never proved it. And so in 2011, it was described. And, and so when we put this proposal together in 2013, 14, we, we had, we really knew very little. So we had to do diagnostics. We, we didn't have a test to, to, to verify we had the disease or not beyond by looking at symptomology, which can be confusing. We had to do a lot of field trials to just learn more about the biology of the virus and the mite to explore control methods, how it's distributed, where it's distributed, because we only had a vague idea of that. And then, of course, from a genetic point of view, we needed to figure out what was resistant. And at this point, we had some guesses, and so we created some populations to study resistance. But a lot of what we did was to put a large variety trial in. Uh, we planted it in Texas, in Delaware, and uh, with Mark Windham in Tennessee to evaluate for rose resistance in Delaware and Tennessee. And in Texas, we looked at black spot resistance and Cercospora and a lot of other horticultural traits. Uh, so we did a lot of this and we discovered one very important thing is that all major commercial varieties are susceptible mm -hmm. to rose rosette, which, you know, was not what I was hoping. I was hoping I'd find no. this wonderful resistance. It didn't come. There are levels of, of susceptibility. So there are some that are less susceptible than others. Uh, so we learned that. We did find some species, uh, North American species particularly, that were immune as far as we could tell from Rosazette. And so there was some immunity there, but unfortunately those do not breed well with our commercial materials. So using them would be a long-term project. And not that breeding is short term, but this is even longer term. So you're talking about decades. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so that's sort of what we, we started doing. So we're doing these field trials. We also had money to do socioeconomic analysis. Again, the willingness to pay study was one of them we did. Uh, the, the economic team also um, estimated the value of a rose resistance rose rosette resistant variety. And they they estimated the value about $35 million per year. Wow. And in reality, you can't just have one variety that's resistant because we have, you know, a hundred major varieties, right? And so we have to convert all these things to more resistant uh, varieties for garden use in the Midwest and the East Coast anyways, where rose rosette is an issue. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And of course, Extension uh, extension Group put together the Rose Rosette uh, website, which is a repository for all the, the good information on Rose Rosette. 
And unfortunately, there's a lot of bad information out there too. But this is where you should go for the good information. We started working on a distribution <laughs> map as well. And so asking for input from uh, our Rose Rosette network. And uh, so we, we did various things like that. And in parallel to this, the Rose uh, Breed Project was refunded. And so this went on for the same time we we're doing the Rose Rosette work. And in this, we put a lot more effort into the black spot uh, resistance. And in the new iteration, we involved the University of uh, Minnesota and University of Wisconsin. So Stan Hokeson and Dave Slezak were involved. Mm -hmm. And they worked on, on vertical or dominant gene resistance to black spot. And then Texas A&M would work on partial or qualitative resistance on black spot. And these are really two very different types of resistance. And so if you look at those and distinguish between the two, you have the vertical and sometimes called dominant, sometimes called uh, qualitative resistance. But basically it's, it's a sort of a, a lock and key type mechanism. So the, the varieties that are resistant have locks and the, the, the pathogen, has keys and we talk about varieties of roses. If you look at the pathogen, it's not all the same. They're essentially races of pathogen. And each one has a different key to try to get through the resistance barrier, which is the lock, right? And so you get uh, resistance to uh, a dominant type resistance and it is resistant to a set of races. But if you get a race that has that key to get in there, it's susceptible. So it's what we call race-specific resistance. And that's the resistance that uh, Stan Hokeson at the University of Minnesota and Dave Slezak, the University of Wisconsin, uh, River Falls are working on. They've done really great work. They've identified several vertical resistance genes and, and they continue working on that. Now, the other type is partial resistance. Now, as it indicates, it doesn't give you complete resistance, whereas the other one is yes or no. This one is different levels of resistance to the pathogen. So I sort of look at it as the strength of the door to get into the, the plant. And the higher the resistance, the stronger that door is. But it can be overcome if there's enough pathogen on the outside to overcome it. So what this, this does is just sort of uh, it slows down the reproduction of the pathogen on the plant. So it doesn't eliminate the, the pathogen's ability to reproduce, but it slows it down tremendously so you have very little disease. And so the higher, the more genes for resistance you get, the higher level of, of uh, disease. And so from 2000 to 2019, uh, during these two projects, we learned a lot about both of these pathogens and improved our ability to genetically characterize roses. As molecular techniques were improving, it's amazing, it's sort of like computer technology. Molecular technology is just going, accelerating the progress every year. And it's getting less expensive now, so it's becoming within the capability of breeders to use it to uh, accelerate their breeding. But in 2019, the funding stopped. Mm-hmm.
and we still had a lot to do. So when the funding stopped, tell us what was still on your to-do list. Oh, it was so big. (laughs) (laughs) For one, we we still had field work to finish up. We had started, especially the genetic work, we had started that and got that in the ground in 2018. So the funding stopped in 2019. So we still had that to finish. Mm -hmm. Uh, We still had problems with uh, analyzing genetic information. And the problem here is that all of a sudden, a lot of the tools we had were for for diploids. And let me sort of step back now. Most animals and plants are diploids, which means they have two sets of chromosomes. So you have, if you look at the probabilities of things going here and there, uh, there's just, you know, one or two. But most roses are tetraploid, so they have four sets. So again, mathematically, it's just more complex to, to analyze. So we had that. And then we had a lot more data too, because now we had molecular markers. So we didn't have hundreds of data points. We had millions of data points mm-hmm. analyzed. So we needed more, better software to deal with the, the number of uh, data points, but also with the complexity of the the tetraploid organisms. Of course, we had to continue breeding work. We still had to find new sources of resistance because we found some. And then there's been continuous breeding, so we have to confirm some of this uh, work as well. So we we had to continue with that. Uh, We had to now understand the mechanism of resistance, especially for rose rosette resistance. So we found it uh, resistance that actually was derived from Rosa Wachuriana. Uh, so now we had to understand why it was resistant. Was it resistant because it was affecting the virus biology or was it affecting the mite biology because it's, it's uh, transmitted by a mite? So those are important with respect to going forward and learning how to use the resistance and how to manage the, the disease. Of course, we had to identify additional genes because we only had a few and we knew more were out there. And then once we did this, the next step is to put all those genes from a breeding point of view into one one variety that so it would be sustainable and resistant to be resistant to both black spot and rose rosette. So at this time, as the funding ended, we still had field plots maintained in Texas and, and Tennessee. And so we had to find funding. So tell, so tell us, where did the funding come to continue the field work? Well, we were lucky that both Texas A&M University and the University of Tennessee helped mm-hmm. with some funding. Of course, I, uh, Robert Basie endowed a chair in Rose Genetics and had a little endowment funding to work with. So I used that. Uh, the American Rose Research Trust uh, was was key as well. They were very good about continuously funding the work to keep it going. The Rose Garden Council came through with some funding mm-hmm. to get things uh, uh, replanted and to, to do the evaluations. Uh, Pat Shanley and Paul Zimmerman stepped in with a GoFundMe campaign. So we had hundreds of Rosarians donating money towards the project as well. And I, I thank every every one of them for their their donations. 
And again, without this funding, we would have lost several years of research. But we were lucky we had the, the industry behind us and the, the community behind us to keep this funding working. So that, that kept us going. And so my next step was to put proposals together again. And so we put a sustainable roads proposal together. This was in 2020. We put the first one together, I guess. And then we also, oh, it's 2019, actually. And we also put a, a tools for polyploids proposal together. And this is this gets into my real nerdy part because it's all about genetics. And what I ran up again is, is what I was explaining to you previously, the diploid versus tetraploid. So again, working with roses genetically is much more complex than most plants. And thank goodness it's not just roses. Potatoes are like this. Sweet potatoes are like this. You get blackberries, you get strawberries. So a lot of other major crops that have this issue and what we call polyploidy, tetraploid, hexaploid. So they have more than two sets of chromosomes. And again, up to this point, if you looked at the software or the computational tools we had to analyze this data, it was mainly for diploids and for, for corn and soybeans and inbred crops. Well, our crops are not inbred for one, which makes them a little more complex as well. Um, so this whole project, it brought together breeders from, from various crops, uh, potatoes, sweet potatoes, blackberries, turf grass, and rose, and then brought the computational scientists, the people who now knew how to make the codes to analyze all this. Uh, we had people from North Carolina, from University of uh, Wisconsin, from Wageningen in the Netherlands, and uh, from the uh, Plant Food Research Organization in New Zealand, and, and actually at Texas A&M, to come together to actually develop new software and improve the existing software so we can analyze this, this stuff properly. Because up to this point, I've been trying to use the diploid software to analyze the tetraploid. And mm -hmm. it's, it gives you results, but not always with a lot of confidence. And so I put this new project in, and it actually was funded in two 2020. And so that was the Tools for Polyploids, especially Crop Research Initiative. And again, it was key to being to analyze our rose data uh, properly. And so that's been going uh, on for, we just completed two and a half years, and we've done tremendous work at improving the software. It's been a really exciting project. As a but, rose grower, this is all getting very exciting. Oh, it's it's as a breeder, it's it's really exciting. And so the next step was to actually get money for <laughs> roses again, but just for rose rosette or black spot. Actually, I wanted to combine them now because uh, again, the the ultimate goal when I started in the 1990s was a sustainable, well adapted rose variety, right? And so. I needed both, 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 mm -hmm. uh, both diseases in there, because when you ask people and you look around, in Texas and in the U.S., uh, black spot is very important. And of course, black spot throughout the world is extremely important, and rose rosette 
in the US is the most important disease at this moment because it kills the plant. Mm -hmm. black spot defoliates, but generally doesn't kill the plant. It just makes it ugly for a while. <laughs> and you know, I, I plants in front of my house that I've been trying to get rid of. And I finally did because we had to do some renovations uh, because they had wonderful flowers, but they had never had leaves. But my <laughs> mother-in-law wouldn't let me take them out because she'd like the flowers. And I didn't like them because they didn't have leaves. But she wins always. <laughs> but uh, so anyways, we've come a long ways in, in developing things. So we had now we have uh, better tools to analyze data. Sequencing is becoming less expensive. Uh, technology to develop and use DNA tests to figure out which genes you have there are in, increasing uh, increasingly easy and less expensive. So the development of a sustainable ROSE project, which combined all this plus the extension and the economics and marketing part, we had all the pieces in place now. And so we started pushing this a lot harder and trying to get this new project funded. And then finally, in 2022, it was funded. Now, this was after the third attempt. So every attempt, you get a little better. <laughs> because you, you get feedback from the reviewers, and they tell you, oh, no, we're not going to fund it like this. And so it's all about what they will fund. And so it's it's always a process. You, you think, okay, we, we submit something, we have funded, we're fine. It never goes that way. It always, in these projects, uh, the Specialty Crop Research Initiative projects is gets funded if the industry supports you. So it's a very complex procedure. We get uh, support from industry, from the community, uh, and you get matching as well. So industry has come through with, uh, uh, we, we requested in this last project, $4 million of funding. Mm -hmm. So we had to come come through with $4 million of matching funds. Now, some of this is through my salary and salary of everybody on this project. I think we have 17 people on the project. And it, it includes uh, Texas A&M University, uh, Oklahoma State University, uh, University of Tulsa in Oklahoma. You have the USDA in Maryland. University of Tennessee, University of Georgia, and Ohio State University. I don't think I missed anybody, but if I did, I apologize. I don't have the list in front of me. But so there's so 17 or so PIs that, that help us with this project. Mm -hmm. So it's very complex. And I had to get like 40 uh, letters from industry, uh, committing donations of plants, uh, funding to sponsor meetings, uh, locations to do research, uh, help with uh, communication, which uh, the podcast is is doing that here, and uh, a lot of different things. So it, it's been a quite a process, uh, but we finally got it funded in in 2022, and uh, we we have the overall overall uh, ultimate objective was again to develop sustainable rose cultivars. Again, gardeners want easy to grow, disease-resistant, sustainable roses. Yes, we do. And breeders want to produce them. 
because they, they want to sell their roses. Yes, they do. And so it's a win-win for both both sides. And I work sort of in between people saying, okay, well, we want this and this is how you can do it quicker. And so that's my role here. And so we've come a long ways. And so this project, again, a, a big part of the project is the genetics of it. And the uh, again, we, we're trying to find more sources of resistance. And so we're doing uh, uh, trials, both of genetic populations for genetic studies, as well as varieties in Texas A&M, University of uh, Tennessee, and now we'll be at, at Oklahoma State University as well. So we have those three locations. Right now, I'm trying to get things planted. Uh, so we're getting a lot of plants in and organizing things. And uh, so we'll do variety trials and genetic trials there. We're trying to find more genes for resistance to rose rosette. And that we'll be doing these trials. And we're finding sources from the, some of the Canadian varieties. And then, of course, we're, we're just doing a general variety trial to see if we can find other things that might re be resistant. Uh, we're looking for more sources of resistance to uh, black spot as well. So people up in Minnesota and Wisconsin, they're, they're looking at uh, three more sources of resistance for vertical resistance to black spot. They're trying to characterize those. And they do a lot of their work in the lab. And then I take all their populations to put them in the field as well to see if they have any partial resistance to them. And so we're, we're doing it both ways. And so both black spot and, and uh, rose rosette is, is progressing. And now we're, along with that, we're doing the molecular work to find markers for the resistance we know about so we can accelerate our breeding process and start combining these genes into one, one genotype or one plant. So, you know, basically, Normally what I see, I find a, a good resistance gene for rose rosette and, and variety A and for black spot and variety B and for a different black spot resistant variety C. Now I got to take those and intercross those and put all those resistance genes into variety ABC. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what we want to do. We want to do it as quickly as possible. And with the genes we have, we figure it's going to take about three generations to put them all in, in one one package, okay? And that's three generations and, oh, tens of thousands of plants later. So it's a lot of a lot of stuff we have to go through to get this done. Uh, but if we did it the old fashioned way with five, five year generation times, you're talking about 15 years. Now, if we condense that to two year generation time, we can do it in six. Mm -hmm. So that's a big difference. Oh, it is a big difference. All of this is just truly great news. And, you know, I just feel like this project is could not be in better hands. And um, but what about the Rose community? Um, tell us some ways that we could continue supporting this effort. OK, there's a couple of ways. One, one way is interaction with the extension people. The extension program is developing. Uh, well, this year they'll be planting out a couple variety trials just for demonstration purposes and collecting data to confirm what we know and and maybe learn a few more things about these varieties and how they react in different environments. Because one thing we, we need to be careful about as we incorporate resistance to some of these diseases into these uh, varieties, 
and make sure the resistance holds up in different environments. And so we're going to try to hopefully plant these in, in Texas, Tennessee, Georgia, and Ohio, and perhaps other places to see what the environmental influence are on these various disease resistance genes. And so that's one thing we're going to do. They're going to put other trials looking at uh, control of the virus. They, they have some um, what I'll call antiviral substances. I don't know if that's really the proper term for them, but somehow they, they suppress viral, uh, viral growth within the plant. And so they want to put a, a, uh, a trial out on that. They'll be working with the Rose Rosette uh, website and improving that, adding more information uh, about resistance. Uh, so what we've uh, learned thus far, we'll, we'll put that on the website so it's easily accessible. We also have a Rose Rosette network where we sign up people and they report whether they see Rose Rosette in their garden. So we can get a better sense on if roses that's moving further away into <laughs> new areas because we really don't know that what we have now is we have reports in certain areas where extension people are and we need to expand that to to other areas to get a better feel for how well adapted it is or, or how well spread it is <laughs> i don't know if well is a good term here <laughs> <laughs> how widely ex ex distributed the virus is. And so we need to do that. Uh, we can also get, uh, you know, getting help uh, spreading the word and, and good information about Rose Rosette. If people can put articles in their newsletters, um, uh, talk about it at their, their meetings. I know Mark has talked at a lot of uh, Rose uh, meetings about Rose Rosette and black spot and management of both diseases. Um, I'm willing to do the same, though sometimes I can't travel quite as much as Mark, and so I might have to do it by Zoom, but I'm more than happy to do things like that. Uh, we will have good information out that you can pass out and things like that. I'll be talking at the American Rose Society about uh, our work as well, so if you're at the annual meeting, uh, come by and listen to me. You've been listening to the Rose Chat Podcast with Chris Van Cleve and Teresa Byington, expert rose gardeners who want to help you achieve the rose garden of your dreams. Don't miss an episode. Listen anytime on our website at rosechatpodcast.com or listen on the go via the Rose Chat app on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Share this podcast with your social networks and join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using the hashtag RoseChat. Join us next time for another edition of the Rose Chat Podcast. The Rose Chat Podcast is a production of the Rose Chat Media Group, Birmingham, Alabama.